0: Welcome to the On Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson, and with me is Aaron Miller. We have our usual format for you today with three news roundup topics up front. Those three news roundup topics will be the WikiLeaks CIA leak and everything that's kind of come out of that about tech companies and hacking and all the rest of it. Secondly, we'll talk about a couple of stories relating to fake news. So, Facebook finally started flagging fake news stories on its site. And then Google was in the news for kind of opposite reasons because it's been surfacing a lot of arguably fake news in its little snippets feature that shows up in search results. Thirdly, we'll talk about reports from Bloomberg that Nest is working on some new hardware, including cheaper thermostats, more capable thermostats, and also a home security system. So we'll talk through those three news items. We'll then move on to our question of the week. And this week, our question is, can Uber be saved from itself? And obviously, Uber's been in the news for all the wrong reasons the last few weeks because of a whole series of things, some of which we've talked about already. But it's raising a bigger question about Uber, which is, is it at some sort of point of no return where it can't be fixed? Does it need to be fixed, actually? That's sort of begging that question as well. So we'll talk through all of that in some detail. And Aaron's been, been looking into this, and, and we'll bring in an interesting perspective from his work as an ethics professor. And then we'll talk in our third segment about PC versus Mac. And no, we're not going to talk about those old commercials, but we are going to talk about the fact that In the news in the last few days, there have been a few articles arguing that the PC, specifically the desktop PC, is cool again, that perhaps Windows is gaining an edge on the Mac that it hasn't had for some time, uh, and things relating to that. So we'll have some discussion about that in our third segment. And then, as usual, we'll wrap up with a weekly pick. So let's kick off with that news roundup. And first off, this uh, WikiLeaks dump of data purporting to be from the CIA and relating to a lot of techniques and tactics for breaking into devices of various kinds. So uh, iPhones, Android phones, Samsung smart TVs have all been uh, in the coverage here. There's been a lot of coverage that's been pretty misleading as well about breaking encryption on uh, certain communication apps like Signal, um, which is, is false, it's misleading. Basically, what's been broken here is devices. And so once you get onto a device, encryption doesn't matter because you can see the end result of a communication in somebody's communication app. So. Uh, some bad reporting around that, and around this topic in general. But Aaron, what was your take on all this?
1: Yeah, it's funny. When the news broke, it it really felt like dog bites man kind of news. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I fully, fully expected the CIA and other government intelligence agencies to have tools for all the kinds of stuff that was described, and it was and it was about the level of penetration and sophistication that I just assumed was already out there. Right. I didn't. I didn't think encryption had been broken, and like you said, you know, despite some bad reporting, that isn't the case. Right. Um, but once you get your hands on an actual device, there are probably an order of magnitude more vectors available to break into into these things. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think the interesting question is that Apple has said well, we've patched a lot of this stuff. I mean, because Apple is one of the few companies that has made a public statement about this. And they've said, we've patched a lot of the stuff that's revealed. But Apple, because the WikiLeaks WikiLeaks report wasn't that detailed, Apple can't even say for sure if they've covered all of those security vulnerabilities yet. So there is some stuff that's that's still up in the air about this. I'm kind of curious if we'll ever know the full details because, Mm -hmm. you know, the odds of WikiLeaks having held information back with this leak seem low. I know the FBI has already started a criminal investigation to find out who it is that leaked this, and the, the, I guess the, the speculation based on Wikileaks' statement is that it was a contractor somewhere, who, you know, a third-party contractor who had gotten their hands on this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say if there's going to be more coming out. I, I, so there are still question marks out there, and that's the interesting thing to me is to know how far intelligence agencies can actually get into a device or into a communication stream
0: yeah absolutely and uh, you know you mentioned the apple press release i've seen a a response from samsung because samsung smart tvs were part of this reporting as well and it seemed that the uh, microphones in smart tvs at least certain of samsung's past smart tvs could be turned on remotely without appearing to turn on the television so there'd be no sign anything was listening but they could then turn on those microphones um, that appears to be uh, something that requires a USB stick to be put in the back of the TV. And so, right. in talking to a reporter this week, I kind of said, if, if you have to worry about that kind of thing, you've probably got other things to worry about as well. You know, this isn't the sort of mass uh, hack that can be done you know, remotely of everybody, just sort of speculatively. This would be a very targeted attack addressing a specific individual in their home in which case somebody's breaking into your home already you've probably got bigger fish to fry than your samsung tv listening to you obviously still makes for bad headlines but
1: well i was gonna say like any of the other bugs they would put all over the house besides your tv well exactly (laughs) that's turning your tv into one (laughs) absolutely
0: so you know that it's again makes for bad headlines for samsung and samsung Hasn't said they've patched these vulnerabilities, although it seems these are TVs that were sold some time ago and Newer TVs actually have the microphone and the remote which is a different system entirely So right. there are you know, not so many worries about that um, You know Apple's response is basically in the latest version of iOS most of these vulnerabilities are patched and that's important because on iOS i like 79% are now running iOS 10 If you add in iOS 9 and most of these hacks seem to have targeted iOS 8 and earlier So if you add in 9, it's something like 95% of iPhones are now running iOS 9 or 10. So they're fairly safe from most of these vulnerabilities at this point. But, of course, there's an ongoing effort, to your point. You know, we all assume this stuff is happening all the time. And there's a sort of game of cat and mouse of discovering and then patching vulnerabilities across this stuff. I haven't really seen any commentary from any of the Android vendors or from Google specifically, which is interesting as well. Well, let's move on to the, the second topic in our News Roundup, which is about fake news and two specific stories. Firstly, Facebook has started flagging some uh, fake news articles as such on its site in keeping with um, new policies and systems that it announced a couple of months ago. It's working with a couple of partners. uh, Snopes and PolitiFact, I think, are two of the early ones uh, who are doing the fact checking. And so what happens is users flag articles shared by other users on Facebook as potentially being fake news. That then gets bounced to Snopes and PolitiFact once there's enough people flagging an article. They then do their investigation and come back with some kind of verdict. And then if they determine that this is misleading in some way, it gets a little disclaimer underneath it that says this has been flagged. It might be dubious. Um, that's good news. Obviously, I think it's a good good response to all of this. Um, the, the downside is it seems to have taken about a week to flag the first article from when it was published, which means probably the vast majority of people who are ever going to read it had read it already by the time it got the little flag. So certainly needs to move faster. The other thing that was in the news was Google, uh, and this has been happening for quite some time now, but it's been uh, reported on more perhaps over the last few days, which is that Google, both in its snippets within search results and then its audio responses in Google Home, uh, for certain queries, especially about things that are sort of conspiracy theory-esque, return the sort of definitive answer from Google, which is completely inaccurate, based on uh, certain sites that are trying to push um conspiracy theories and things like that. So Aaron, what was your take on these two stories?
1: You know, I it it's and it, it it reinvokes the tension we've already talked about before, which is when you have uh algorithms driving um visibility of news items, uh you run the risk of popularity pushing up stuff that that shouldn't be popular, the fake news stuff. I mean you know, once once a story gets a certain amount of momentum on Facebook, it's, it, it ends up getting pushed out in other ways that, that mm-hmm. adds to its popularity because the algorithm is driving its popularity, not just the users themselves. Right. Um, that it, it's, it's still gonna be an interesting tension because I'm not sure algorithms are ever really gonna be able to crack the fake news problem in the same way that human editing can, like Snopes and PolitiFact are doing for Facebook. I totally agree, by the way, that a week is way too long. Um, for for that step to have for that flagging step to have any impact, yeah. um, because I mean a week is plenty of time for for <clears throat> other news outlets and others to debunk something. The trick is somehow getting it to appear suspicious. If it's if it's completely fabricated like fake news is, the trick is making it appear suspicious before it ever becomes popular, not mm. after it's sort of the damage is done. Right. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think the other thing that came up in some of the reporting about this was that there are whole publications that exist solely to promulgate this kind of stuff. And so, you know, they're known, that that's right. a known fact about these publications. And yet, you know, Facebook still sort of takes a piece-by-piece approach to these. And, and in some cases, the best approach would be to say, hey, this is a publication that we know only publishes Either false news or, you know, claims it's it's satirical or whatever, which is often the claim these sites fall back on um, to avoid sort of claims of fraud and so on. Um, you know, if that's known to be the case, and you just flag everything from that publication with some kind of message. And, and because Facebook isn't blocking this stuff or downgrading it in its algorithm or anything like that, you know, there's no reason why it shouldn't flag things in that way. So, um, you know, that's... Something I think that Facebook should be working on as well, alongside the sort of piece-specific stuff with with Snopes and Fact. Any thoughts on the Google side of things?
1: Um, just that it's silly and embarrassing, and yeah. it shows that that AI is not going to get us all the way there. Right. I, I mean, there's somewhere. Yeah, I guarantee Google already has an engineer recoding things to try to slap you know these specific topics down so a mm-hmm. Google Home doesn't you know. Spout about some ridiculous conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, I, I. You know, I, I think the other thing that's funny about this, though, is the people asking these questions already know the answers. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, the snippets thing is, I guess, different because it's filling in. But if you ask your Google Home a question about whether or not, you know, President Obama or President Trump would fill in blank whatever ridiculous story about them. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're asking that question of your Google Home, it's not because you're like, "Boy, I need some extra information and wisdom on this." Right, <laughs> right. And, well, there, I mean, there was a Home, story. There
0: was a story this week about uh, students in a college classroom making, uh, asking their teacher, question or their professor a question about Warren Harding being in the Klan, uh, in the Ku Klux Klan, um, and the teacher said, "Well, no, that doesn't really make much sense," but they discovered this fact, quote unquote, on Google. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's it's some of this more obscure stuff um, that still comes up wrong, basically. And and I think that's the key here, is the more obscure it is or the less sort of mainstream a query is, either in terms of the number of people asking it or the number of sites actually providing an answer or purporting to provide an answer for it, and especially if there are no reputable sites addressing the topic at all, those ought to be pretty strong signals to Google's algorithms that these aren't good candidates for the sort of snippet or sort of definitive answer type approach. And I think that's right. the simple solution here, is Google just needs to pair this way back in terms of the kinds of queries it tries to do this for. And I think if it were to do that, that would solve the problem almost entirely. Uh, because if it's a mainstream enough question, then there will be lots of reputable sites that answer the question. And those will be the sites will tend to float the highest in Google search results, and those will therefore be the ones it looks to to provide that sort of definitive answer. So this feels like one that's a simple fix. Well, let's move on to our third News Roundup topic, which is report from Bloomberg, and this was Mark Gurman, who usually specializes in Apple uh, leaks, and, and this time it's a, a Nest or Alphabet leak. But reports at Nest working on several different things. One is a cheaper thermostat, it sounds like it probably just has cheaper materials, ditches the metal on the sides, for example. Uh, another report, uh, part of the article, was uh, about uh, doing multi-room... Settings for a thermostat in other words a thermostat one single device would be able to control the temperature in multiple different rooms in different ways um, You know we have several nests in our home because we need to control the temperature differently in different rooms that are exposed to sunlight at different times of day and therefore heat and cool at different rates So we have multiple nests to solve that problem. This purports to solve the problem in a different way um, Which is interesting the um, other report was about various security system stuff, so a keypad and the sort of stuff that you associate with maybe an AGT system or something like that, as well as some more advanced cameras, and they obviously do have some cameras already uh, that they offer. So some interesting stuff in that reporting. Any thoughts on that from you, Aaron?
1: The smart home market is still too expensive, and I think Nest moving down market is evidence that that's still true. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's a surprise, but there's they've they've got a long way to go, and you know there's going to be it's it's a it's partly a function of figuring out the business models, it's partly a function of getting cheaper components. Um, there's not really a standard set of components, you know, for every smart home, and that's still being worked out. This is all still such early sort of such an early groundbreaking stage for smart homes. You know, there's not an opportunity for many efficiencies yet, and and those need to happen before smart homes become a thing that, uh, you know, most people ca- experience.
0: Yeah. Now, the other thing that I've argued in, on this podcast in the past when we did a segment on the state of the smart home is that it's the services model that's really going to push the smart home forward. Uh, in other words, it's not a sort of buy it at the store and install it yourself, but it's going to be a professional installation management and a service that you pay for on a monthly basis. And Nest doesn't offer that model today, and that, that means it's basically stuck among the, the are the adopters who are willing to do that sort of self-install model. When their new CEO was installed a while back, he comes from a background of both sort of partnerships and services. And so I speculated when he was installed there as a new CEO that he might preside over a shift in focus at Nest. And there's no evidence in the Bloomberg piece that they're about to do that with the security system. But, of course, that is how security systems are typically offered, is as a service, because there is a, a management component. There's a, you know, call the police type stuff, if if the alarm goes off, uh, so that lends itself very well to that services model. So I'm I'm curious to see if this does end up being a step in that direction for Nest. Obviously, the corollary to that is they need to do installation and management and all the rest of it, and that requires dedicated staff, which Nest obviously doesn't have today. And so they'd probably need to be at least some partnerships or some subcontracting or something going on there. I'd be very curious to see how they would manage that, whether they'd work through existing providers like carriers and. Um, others who are doing this kind of thing already or whether they would uh, use just third-party call centers and kind of white-label something that somebody else is offering. But lots of interesting possible directions this could go in. Um, And the other thing is the the multi-room nest thing. As I said, we'd love that in our home. The problem is you need to have the dampers and everything installed in your HVAC system to make that work. And so even if you were to have a nice cheap thermostat that manages it for you, you'd probably need a professional HVAC technician to come and install some new uh, bits and pieces in your... Uh, in your vents and so on so that you could control rooms separately and that, that feels like a much bigger proposition than just buying a thermostat so I'm kind of a bit sceptical about that one.
1: And this is why smart homes, why smart home components have to get so much cheaper because to really commit to a smart home in all the ways that are sort of envisioned, you're talking about a lot of hardware. I mean there's a, there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff you'd have to install to have a fully baked smart home and mm-hmm. And, you know, those prices are huge It once they all get added up right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just our nests, I mean, that's one of the few bits of smart home technology we did install when we built a new home a couple of years ago. But just that, it was steep, you know. Um, yeah. And, you know, just, that was just one thing. If we'd done outlets, if we'd done light switches, if we'd done all kinds of other stuff, it would have added up very, very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, and that was installing from scratch in a brand new home, let alone ripping out and replacing existing stuff that might be there. So, yeah, absolutely agreed on that point. All right. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said up front, the question this week is, can Uber be saved from itself? And I think that's a, a title that we borrowed from an article that was written in the past week. But it's a great question. That I think a lot of us are asking at the moment. Uber does seem to have been going through a really difficult few weeks, um, mostly of its own doing um, at the beginning of 2017 here. A whole range of stuff that I'm sure Aaron will talk us through. But the question is, you know, what's behind all of that? Why is Uber having these troubles? What could it do to change things? And and is there really any prospect that it can change in a meaningful way? So Aaron's been looking into that, and he's bringing his ethics expertise to bear on this topic as well. So Aaron, let's start with just kind of a recap of what's actually been going on at Uber, both in the last few weeks and sort of more long-term as well.
1: Yeah, and I want to talk about the long-term stuff, like going back further than the last few weeks, only because it's important to set the stage as to why... The impact of the last couple of weeks, I think, has been so so large. Um, uh, Uber has a long checkered past. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say long. They're not exactly that old of a company. They were only born in in uh, two thousand and ten. But but they've had a, they've hit the news for a lot of ethically questionable behavior. And so, just giving a quick litany of of, of the things that have been in the news, um, anti competitive behavior is one of those things. Um, Lyft, who's their largest competitor. Uh, Discovered that Uber was setting up fake fake riders and then canceling rides, um, so that drivers were uh, are getting uh, booked without actually getting fares out of it. Um, They were uh, also engaged in sabotaging uh, Lyft's funding efforts, and and Travis Kalanick was actually calling the CEO of Uber was actually calling up potential funders for Lyft and saying that if you invest in Lyft, we're going to blackball you on an Uber investment. Uber's done 14 different funding fundraising rounds and and uh, so they've had brought in a lot of investors over time and so that uh, they were trying to leverage their their their, their funding strategy to, to dry up funding for Lyft. Um, obviously over the years there has been misbehavior from drivers like drivers assaulting riders and and getting into accidents. Uh, one driver in Michigan killed a six-year-old girl in an accident um, and there were questions about what sort of liability Uber is willing to bear when its drivers misbehave. Um Uber has also had a long history of not treating the drivers very well. Um underpayments are a huge problem. Uber drivers are constantly complaining about not getting paid well enough. In fact, this was a recent news item that we'll talk about in a minute involving Travis Kalanick getting videotaped without his knowledge having an argument with a driver. Um, unexplained cancellations are a problem, um, and then also uh, like where Uber drivers essentially get suspended from the service, and they don't, they don't exactly know why. They just essentially get uh, their business gets taken away from them, and then uh, independent contractor treatment. Uber has had along as throughout all these years. Worked its, worked its hardest to make sure that its drivers get treated as independent contractors rather than employees, so that way they don't have to do employment taxes or any other or benefits or all the other issues that come with uh, employment. And, um, and then there have been specific instances that have been really controversial, like uh, how during Hurricane Sandy, the Uber surge pricing mechanism kicked in, and so people were facing skyrocketing prices during, during a uh, natural disaster. Uh, privacy violations. Generally, there's apparently a God mode um, uh, view that uh, Uber executives have access to where they can watch anybody on their route and see where they're going. Um, And in fact, that culminated with uh, an Uber executive threatening to uh, essentially sick private investigators on reporters that produce negative news um, about Uber. Um, And then there's been a whole bunch of instances where uber has entered cities or other markets and operated there illegally um taxi cabs are generally a pretty highly regulated service in most cities or have been historically and and uber didn't operate in a way that complied with those regulations but went in and operated anyway and that has actually cost them um uh Uh, all kinds of penalties and fines and other setbacks, and not just in the United States, but in other countries like like, uh, uh, France and Germany. So, I mean, that's like the list of everything that's happened, not everything, but most of the things that have happened over the years with Uber, but the last few weeks have been especially rough. Um, it started in January when this is a, this is after uh, Trump had set up a, a essentially a business council of advisors and Travis Kalanick was on that and faced some criticism for from from left leaning Uber customers for supporting Donald Trump in that regard. And then around that same time, um, the the cabbies in New York did an hour long strike with JFK Airport to uh, essentially kind of get some bargaining power against their employers, and and Uber uh, kicked in, basically suspended its surge pricing during that hour um, in order to draw business away from all these cabbies that weren't servicing the airport during that time, and that was really controversial and led to a hashtag delete Uber campaign, um, and somewhere around 200,000 people or something like that deleted Uber from their phones during that time period, and I don't know how many have re-added it since, but... But that sort of kicked off what was then followed with a drumbeat of scandals. And so one of the most explosive was uh, an employee, Uber employee named Susan Fowler, who um, wrote up a blog post about her experience with repeated sexual harassment at Uber. And despite reporting it to HR, um, essentially nothing ever changed or was fixed. Um, it was such a big deal that uh, that uh, Travis Klanick, Did sort of like a town hall kind of thing where he got this all out there, said that they're going to be doing investigations. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, But around the same time, um, two uh, Uber executives left the company. One was a former uh, Google executive named Amit Singhal, who um, had only joined the company a month before um, and it was discovered that the reason he left Google had to do with sexual harassment allegations that he was facing there. And he hadn't reported this to Uber. Um, well, then the allegations got to Uber's ears, and so they uh, got rid of him. But then another executive uh, VP of product and growth named Ed Baker, um, he left the company for what, in his statement, he said were family reasons. Um, but uh, there were rumors floating around that he had engaged in some inappropriate behavior with uh, female employees well. That's been the most prominent one of the news, but there have been a bunch of other important ones. Um, Waymo, uh, a, a, uh, the, the self-driving car company from Alphabet, um, filed a lawsuit against Uber claiming that a former Waymo employee named Anthony Lewandowski essentially stole Reams, uh, a, a massive amount, something like 14,000 data files um, on self-driving cars that uh, that then Uber is, is alleged to be using. Um, and this violates trade secret protections. Uh, Travis Kalanick was caught on video arguing with a driver. The driver was complaining to him, and I watched this video, and the driver spent a pretty long amount of time just complaining about prices and how Uber's not good at listening. And to to Kalanick's credit, he was pretty calm and measured until the end, and then he just sort of lost it and, 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 uh, and accused this driver of not taking accountability for his own problems and It didn't end well, and it was kind of embarrassing for him, very embarrassing for him. And then the most recent scandal to hit um, was reported by the New York Times and others that uh, Uber has an app that they've been using called Grayball. Now, the, the reason Grayball exists is to essentially flag and help drivers avoid bad riders but supposedly Uber used this internally to help drivers avoid law enforcement, office, investigators, and other public officials in markets where Uber was not legally allowed to operate. So the idea was that Uber could operate without the wrong people discovering that they were operating there. So it's been, it's been a rough few weeks, but the reality is it's been a rough four or five years for Uber.
0: One of the things that I found kind of striking about Uber is over the last few weeks they've responded to some of this stuff pretty aggressively and kind of said this is terrible and we'll do better and that was certainly the case with the Susan Fowler allegations and also with the video of Travis Kalanick arguing with the driver on the other hand there were things like the Greyball app where Uber's statement basically said yes yeah, so or what <laughs> You know, kind of was a fairly sort of uh, bullish response to that it wasn't at all contrite it sort of suggested that they were well within their rights to do what they were doing so there's this sort of disconnect in some ways between how Uber sees its behavior and how others see its behavior. But, you know, in general, there's this drumbeat of what we'd mostly consider to be bad news about Uber. It suggests that there's something behind all of this, that there's some cultural or other problem at Uber that, that fosters this kind of behavior and that causes these problems for the company. So what, what do you think is behind all this? What's really gonna, going on behind the scenes? And, and what's going wrong, I guess, behind the scenes, if, if you think it is going wrong there?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, if I was a doctor diagnosing the company, um, I would say it's a bad culture of ethics. I, I think the problem is that there's an environment there that's been created so that a lot of these individual decisions as they are being made are being made in a way that aligns with the way the company chooses to operate and aligned with the values of the company um uh, promotes, um, with its employees. And so, you know, if the, if there were one or two of these kind of things going on, you know, every company is going to have bad actors and, and run into people that maybe don't know to hold the corporate values. When it's a repeated set of, of, of outcomes like they've had, uh, a repeated set of scandals like they've had, this is employees responding to incentives rather than acting contrary to them responding in a way that actually upholds the company's values that they hold rather than than acting in a way that is in opposition to the company's values. And and the reality is, if you want a company that has good ethics and the culture that's baked into sort of the general expectation of how everybody works, there are three primary attributes that you have to be sensitive to. One is prominence, meaning that the ethical values that you hold have to be constantly repeated and provided to the employees, signal to them in a way that's very clear. Um, The second one is openness, meaning you have to have a way of receiving feedback from employees and customers so that you can identify bad behavior, behavior that contradicts your values. Um, and then the third one is consistency, meaning that the values that you hold out, you have to act in a way that is consistent with them. Otherwise, you're actually telling an opposite story to the one that you intend to. You're, you're, you're actually inculcating the opposite of the values that might be in your corporate value statement. Um, and it's interesting when you go through, if, you, if we look at Uber and these, according to these three attributes, we can learn a lot about what's going on. Um, When it comes to prominence, every company culture has prominent values, period. Every company, no matter where it is, there are values that matter to the company and are repeatedly and prominently voiced to the employees, either formally or informally. The question is which values are prominent, right? That's the big question. And if you look at the way Uber operates and the news reports and the employees that have written blog posts and the way that Uber has talked to its own own employees, you can get a pretty clear sense of the values that matter there. Um, in fact, uh, Uber doesn't actually have a published company value statement, at least not one that I was able to find and I looked for a while and I couldn't find one. They, they do have sort of key values that they talk about in other contexts. So they talk about like how they want to build communities through the Uber service, right? Or Or how they want to make sure that that riders and drivers feel safe and have their privacy protected and so forth. So there are values out there, but they don't have this sort of core set, at least they haven't, they haven't publicized a core set of values that help guide executives all the way down to a driver um, into how they should be making decisions. Um, uh, now, Despite not having a company value statement, they did recently promote 14 employee attributes at an employee um, training event Um, and this gets us pretty close to identifying what matters at Uber. Um, In those 14 employee attributes they have typical things like quality, innovation, communication but there were some other values that stand out and make them different as a company. One of those employee values for example or employee attributes that they look for for example is fierceness and um, there was a Uh, There was actually a company statement in response to a Business Insider article about this. Um, So Business Insider did a little bit on these employee attributes that they're looking for. And they asked the company to define a couple of these and fierceness is one they asked to define and this is how Uber defined it. Be fierce. Do whatever it takes to make Uber a success, even when it's hard, and take some risk to get there. Now, that's a really strong statement it's because the statement again to repeat it is do whatever it takes to make uber a success um and that essentially is saying go at it right and uh and 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 no holds barred and, and that it describes the reasoning of why they would do a lot of the things that they've done in the past another really funny one is uh super pumped upness mm-hmm. <laughs> was another one of these employee <laughs> attributes that they look for um, the way they define it is uh, it brings energy. They say, bring energy and infectious enthusiasm to everything you do. For managers, that means motivating and inspiring team members to perform their best and stretch themselves professionally. But reality, what's being, what's being promoted here is company loyalty. Right? This idea of super pumped upness, they have stories internally that they tell to illustrate or to exemplify these attributes. And the super pumped upness term comes from a moment when a previous uh, Uber executive essentially stepped down from a role so that somebody else could take it. And uh, and he did it in a way that said, hey, this is great. This is making Uber great. And it was described as like super pumped upness at the time. So it stuck, culturally speaking. But really, it's saying be loyal to Uber, be be extremely loyal to Uber, and that and be enthusiastic about the company. Fierceness and loyalty seem to be attributes and strengths, but it's really easy to imagine situations where they can turn into ethical liabilities. Um, you know, saying do whatever it takes to make Uber a success, and in fact, do it with energy and infectious enthusiasm invites employees to do the wrong thing. If you don't have sort of backstop values, like ethical values that say, whatever you do, don't do this or whatever you do, right. make sure you always do this. And those are missing. And that these, these are missing in the 14 employee attributes. There's nothing really about honesty. And, and that's a, that's sort of a glaring omission for a company, for a company's values. Um, to be considered a set of ethical values. But there's one bigger one that actually is overarching everything else. And and, and Uber people tell you this, and Travis Klanick has has made this explicit, that at Uber there's a culture of meritocracy, including toe-stepping. And the idea is that high performers are the ones who get promoted, rewarded, and, and actually succeed at the company. And there's, in fact, there's a culture, and other employees have commented this on blog posts and elsewhere, that there's just sort of this culture, like if you're good at your job, you're gonna succeed at the company. And if you're not good at your job, it's not gonna matter who you're friends with or related to or whatever, you're not gonna be protected because ultimately it comes down to, to metrics of success. And, and Uber is a very metric-driven company in the way they value their employees and very demanding. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for people at Uber to work 80 hours to 100 hours a week. I mean, essentially seven days a week um, working really hard for the company. And um, one other thing that exemplifies this meritocracy culture is that Uber internally uses a stacked ranking evaluation system for its employees. And just a quick summary of how that works. You get a you get a, a point value assigned to you on a, on a regular basis and five is the highest and one is the lowest. And they take sort of a bell curve shape to this so that um, if you're at the bottom end, you're going to get fired. And that's just how it operates. Um, This has been a popular methodology for actually a few decades now, but it's been increasingly abandoned by large companies. GE got rid of it recently. Microsoft got rid of it recently. Amazon got rid of it recently. They've all abandoned this stacked ranking approach because it's actually symptomatic of, actually what it does, it creates an environment to encourage unethical behavior in order to get a high ranking. And uh, and there also ends up being a lot of inside gamesmanship that doesn't even actually relate to performance. But because of the way the system works, if you can get your supervisor to give you a five, then good things happen. And so you might go to lengths that you shouldn't to make that happen. Um, in fact, uh, this was a symptom of the eth- massive ethical failure at Enron um, way back in the early 2000s when Enron fell apart. And led and declared bankruptcy. The shares were trashed, and a whole bunch of people lost their their retirement investments. Uh, Enron used the stack ranking methodology pretty aggressively as a company, and the way people talk about it during that time is, you know, if and this is a quote from somebody who was interviewed in the documentary about Enron. Um, you know, if 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 I if in going to my performance review. It would increase my score. If I stomped on the throat of a fellow employee, then you'd stomp on that employee's throat to get a higher score. And that sort of fierce competitiveness internally um, creates a culture of bad ethics. And these are the values, based on everything I've seen or read, that seem to be promoted most at the company. And they don't relate all that well to ethics. They don't relate all that well to ethical behavior. And so when you think about prominence, um, the values that are prominent are Uber are not necessarily the right ones. Again, these aren't these aren't necessarily bad things, but when they operate in a vacuum, in an ethical vacuum where there aren't other values there, it it, uh, it, it sets your employees up to, to make to make bad choices. Um, the other two sort of organizational attributes of a of, uh, culture of ethics relate to openness and consistency. Openness at Uber has always been a problem. In fact, that is that is one of the key accusations in Susan Fowler's blog post, was that she would report this bad behavior, this sexual harassment, and nothing would be done with it because the company wasn't really open to criticism from its employees, and the same goes for its drivers and, and, and riders. And drivers have complained and eventually just had to file lawsuits because Uber is not very open and they're not, as a company, have not been good listeners. Um, in fact, uh, this, the response to the Susan Fowler um, blog post is interesting because it seems to have created a shift in openness because Travis Kalanick said, hey, we're going to create a group. We're going to put together an advisory group and they're going to investigate this the people leading up that group are eric holder former attorney general who's done lobbying work and pr work for for uber ariana huffington who's a board member and shareholder and leanne hornsley who's the head of hr Uh, these are the three people doing this investigation it seems like a great thing but uber has been specifically called out on this openness attribute by two of its early investors in a post on medium and the reason they were called out is because these three people leading the investigation are all Uber insiders. They're all people who already have a vested interest in the company doing well and looking good, and they shouldn't be the people investigating these charges of sexual harassment. Finally, when it comes to consistency at Uber, there's consistency for the wrong kind of values and not for the right kind. Um, I mentioned that there was an executive who had threatened to do investigations on reporters that were like private investigations on the personal lives of, of reporters that Wrote bad articles about Uber. This guy named Emil Michael. This happened a few years ago. Um, well, Travis Kalanick, when this all broke, wrote a 14 tweet <laughs> apology for what happened, but didn't didn't demote or file uh, Michael. In fact, uh, he kept him in his role and uh, instead said that he needed to be taught on how to behave better. Um, well, Emil Michael, in this big employee training where the 14 attributes were p- pushed out, was held up as an example of one of Uber's 14 employee attributes. <laughs> so he was shown as like, be like him, even though this was the guy who had essentially said, you know, proposed this really terrible policy of, of essentially attacking reporters who had bad things to say about Uber. I mean, it, it, Compare that story and the messages sent by Kalanick in that decision to one of my favorite stories about corporate ethics involved Paul O'Neill, who was executive at Al- who was the CEO at Alcoa, the aluminum manufacturer. And in the in the mid '90s, one of Alcoa's business unit presidents had been uh, involved in a scandal because uh, a bunch of the employees in his business unit had been poisoned by uh, by um, benzene and carbon monoxide gas. Well, all the employees recovered and were fine, but this business unit president had violated the internal reporting requirements at Alcoa. Safety was one of Paul O'Neill's top concerns, and he was constantly beating the drum of safety over and over again. Well, this business unit president didn't uh, report these these safety uh, incidents the way he was supposed to. He it turned out he's a friend of Paul O'Neill's. Um, he was a rising star in the company. Paul O'Neill had to decide what to do with this guy. Well, he fired him, and not only did he fire him, he fired him with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and um, in an e- yeah, and in an email, Paul O'Neill wrote to his employees, company wide, about this decision. He said, "I had no choice but to do this." I'm paraphrasing, but he said, "I had no choice but to do this because of our company's values." Right. He said, the message I would have sent would have been so contrary to our values and would have derailed and sent the wrong message about our values. I had no choice but to fire. him. Yeah. Whereas Kalanick's decision to keep Michael around and to, and to hold him up as a positive example is just showing what really matters at Uber. Right,
0: right. That really does seem to be one of the single biggest issues is that even when they commit to values in, in some way, they don't, don't enforce it or act as if they actually believe it at all. Seems to be such a such a huge issue. Yeah. Uh, what what could change then? I mean, from your experience, what you've seen in other companies, you know, how how could Uber change some of this?
1: Well, so the the sad, the first thing I would recommend to Uber is that they adopt a real corporate value statement, one that they publish, one that they regularly promote to their employees. I think it's sad that there's a lot of um, cynicism around that kind of a thing because there have been so many companies that. Sort of they, they post these value statements and then they never revisit them and they act in ways that are contrary to them all the time. I mean, Enron had a corporate value statement and they violated pretty much everything on this list, right, and the way they behaved in reality. But the truth is a company that has a good set of core values when it comes to ethics and a and company that uses them repeatedly always gets better outcomes. And it's because the repeated use of these corporate values is a is essentially a signaling mechanism to its employees and to how to make decisions. And if you have a real set of corporate values and you use them. Um, then it can actually work and shift a culture in a dramatic way. They obviously also need to add a more robust system of ethics reporting for its employees, and I suspect that the Eric Holder-led investigation is going to recommend that. Um, a lot of companies, Uber's not publicly traded, but if you're a publicly traded company, by law you have to have a whistleblower process and whistleblower protections in place, and, and it's, it doesn't seem to be the case that Uber has anything like that right now. Um, but that would also be not just for employees they would need to have it for drivers and customers as well and then when you adopt these real ethical values you incorporate them into the way you operate on a practical basis so so you would make sure that your employee incentives are structured around the core values so that you're incentivizing this kind of behavior. You make sure that they're always embedded in your employee communications. You promote what I like to call cautionary tales and celebratory stories, right? Where where you tell stories, cautionary tales about employees that failed at Uber because they violated the company values. Companies have these happening anyway, informally all the time. And I would bet if we looked at the cautionary tales at Uber, they involve employees that aren't fierce, right? And that aren't super pumped up, rather than employees that failed in honesty, right? Or accountability. Um, And then, uh, and and you have celebration stories where you talk about the employees who made hard but ethical decisions and and you celebrate those. And then you actually embed these values into hiring and firing decisions. I have a brother who used to work for IM Flash. Um, He's a chemical engineer and they make flash memory he had a colleague who was fired for being dishonest in an email even though the dishonesty didn't directly relate to his job but the reason he was fired is because honesty is one of their corporate values and they took it seriously enough that they let this guy go because it was egregious enough violation of of their corporate value of honesty you have to make those hard decisions to show that you're really committed to them and that they matter
0: do you think Uber actually is capable of making these kinds of changes? I mean, do you think there's a potential that Uber really does change that this culture that we've been describing and talking about can actually change and become healthier at the end of the day?
1: I think so. I, I think I think Travis Kalanick is growing up, and this—that's really condescending of me to say—but he's described it that way. Yeah. And I think the growing up process, you know, i one of the things that I teach and promote all the time is that ethics is not just having a good character. Ethics is actually a set of skills that you develop and hone over your life. And, and if that's true, then that would be true even for Uber as a company and all the people who work there. Um, I think what needs to be combated first is sort of this poisonous idea that that is really actually embedded in the way they've articulated fierceness. This idea that you do whatever it takes to make Uber a success has to go away. There have to be ethical backstops there. The problem is um, there's an argument that bad ethics are the way to get ahead in business, and it's a very popular one, and it's the one that has obviously been embedded in the culture at Uber, and, uh, and that the good guys are always going to come in second. Um, it's a flawed argument in a lot of ways. Um, it, it ignores the counterfactual. I mean what really happens when a company does the right but the hard thing. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, is that ethically suspect business practices um, have all kinds of costs, like driver turnover at Uber is a bad thing, and it's because of the way they've treated drivers. Employee turnover is a bad thing. Uber right now is facing, by some reports, an employee exodus, um, because employees don't want to work for this company anymore. Customer boycotts are a bad thing, and there's no reason to think. I mean, Delete Uber has already gotten a decent amount of momentum on a relatively small issue. There's every reason to think it could get bigger. You know, if you don't think bad ethics can affect your company in dramatic ways, go ask Volkswagen or Wells Fargo what they think about that, right? I mean, these are two companies that face major scandals, had to pay billion-dollar fines. I mean, Wells Fargo, because of an ethics scandal, had to fire 5,400 employees in one day nationwide. I mean, this is how bad it can be if you let this culture build up steam in your company. Um, good ethics on the other hand get you improved loyalty through engaged employees and they give you more trusting customers you avoid scandals you build more sustainable business models that work in the long run and that's the way uber really needs to be thinking and I think that's by it appears that this is where Travis Kalanick is turning um, now this it's funny to to sort of paint uber as being on the brink of failure because they're not I mean the the reality is they have a huge market momentum um, and uh, all of these scandals have not yet derailed the company. Um, but that's really mostly because of low competition in multiple large markets where they operate. There's just not enough Lyft drivers or, uh, you know, or other companies, ride-sharing companies that are competing. But in the long term, if they don't make changes, their market position will decay if they don't get their act together. I think, that's, I, I think this kind of stuff, you don't have a reason to prefer Uber to Lyft that's super compelling right now, except for this market penetration thing. Well, as time goes on, Lyft and other ride-sharing companies are going to continue to build market position, and then there's not a good reason to prefer a company that has that mistreats its women employees, for example. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think I, I think the change can happen. Travis Kalanick has said he's going to be hiring a, a, a new COO who is supposed to be his conscience. There are a lot of people pushing for this person to be a woman, and I think there are a lot of good reasons why a woman in this role should be taken very seriously um, over a man, uh, specifically because of the sexual harassment claims and the, and the perspective that a woman would bring uh, to that issue. But uh, overall, I, I think they can move in the right direction, and as Kalana continues to grow up like he says he is, um, I think Uber can get his act together. Um, I, I guess the, the interesting thing to be wa- to, the interesting thing will be to watch if that actually happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that seems to be the, the big question. I, I think you've made a very convincing case that it is possible to change in the ways that you've talked about, but it's really much of will on the part of Travis and to some extent the board. And if he really is serious finally about changing and he's made those claims before, then, then that's going to be the key, it seems like to implementing some of this stuff.
1: And and there are going to be moments where he's going to have to do hard things, like fire a friend, right? I, I, and right. and and Paul O'Neill did it, and Alcoa was not only uh, Alcoa not only upheld its value of, of employee safety, but it also was one of the best performing companies in its space in the '90s during the decade that he was CEO.
0: Great, great. Okay. Well, thank you. That was really fantastic. I, I thought it was a great perspective on on both the causes of some of these issues and the potential solutions to them. So thank you for for doing that for us. Uh, briefly, we're going to talk in our third segment about PCs and Macs, and just a couple of triggers for this. There's a piece, I think, on The Verge this week about the desktop PC being cool again, um, or cool for the first time, actually, was I think, <laughs> the claim that was made. Uh, and it seems to be using PC in the narrow sense of Windows PCs, because I think it's arguable that iMacs have kind of always been cool, um, right from the days of those sort of multicolored uh, PCs that were introduced sort of 15 years ago. Um But there was that story. There were a couple of others on Business Insider about people moving away from Mac and back to Windows again. There really does seem to be a resurgence of interest in in Windows PCs. There seems to be some concern about the state of the Mac as well. Um, There's a certain irony to that. You know, the Mac's just had one of its best quarters ever off the back of the new MacBooks Pro. Um, You know, those have sold extremely well for Apple. Their their average selling price is higher than it's been for, for a very long time, if not ever. Um, you know, lots of positive signs in the sort of financial side of the Mac business at Apple, but lots of concerns about the desktop Macs in particular and the the Mac Mini and the Mac Pro, which both haven't been updated for some time. It feels like these are getting along in the tooth, feels like Apple doesn't perhaps know what it wants to do next. Perhaps it's waiting on partners like Intel to produce the chips. But the the result of all of this is that there's a bit of a vacuum at the moment in uh, the market for new desktop Macs. And at the same time, we're finally getting some compelling ones from Microsoft with the Surface Studio, but also a, a range of others that were the subject of that Verge piece this week. So, something of a momentum, something of a narrative growing around Windows, kind of gaining on Mac, and there is this broader argument to be made that you know the Mac used to have significant hardware advantages, especially on the laptop side over Windows PCs, just performed better, battery life was better, they were thinner, lighter, better looking. You know, a lot of that's been eroded over the last few years with help from Intel, frankly, I think they finally helped Windows PCs to get better. And I think also with help from Microsoft and some of the the stuff it's done with the Surface and showing other OEMs the way. But Aaron, I'll, I'll stop talking there. Kind of what's your take on all of this? Do you think there's there's substance to a lot of this or is this a bunch of nonsense?
1: I, I worry about it being nonsense largely because like you said, the Mac did really well last quarter. Um, and uh it, it, it's, I think, jumping the gun to assume about what Apple's going to do this year with the Mac. That said, you, you know, I, I, there's got to be some substance to the Apple not being entirely sure what it wants to do with this. And I think the best evidence of that is the recent um, the, the recent set of iPad commercials. Essentially saying, "Hey, this can be a PC for you," and they have those mm-hmm. users with the tweets, you know, and all that. And right. they're really creative. They kind of reinvoke the feeling of the of the Mac versus PC uh, or the Get a Mac ads that they ran, uh, you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it, this, I think, is separate though from this idea that desktop PCs are cool again, or cool for the first time ever. I, what's interesting to me about that is the only people who seem to be saying that or writing about that now are the tech geeks, right? Like the ones who, who still want a PC for all kinds of reasons. And, and I'm not sure how much that's true for most computing users these days. Um, you know, I am not sure. I think, I think Chromebooks are perfectly happy suitable replacements for a lot of people and they've done well because they're so inexpensive and, and meet most people's needs, because they do stuff on the web, and that's their primary you know, use case. Um, tablets have obviously been really, I mean, I mean we, we talk about how the iPad has done poorly, but it was also the fastest growing consumer electronics product in history. <laughs> and, right. and and that was because it was a great PC substitute for a lot of people. And so, I don't know, I mean, I, I can't say, I, I love having a great a desktop or laptop. I love having a good computer in addition to a tablet and an iPhone and all that. But I'm not sure that's true for, you know, the majority of people. Like I think about grandparents or, you know, I think about, uh, you know, sister-in-law or I think about these other people that, that can get by just fine with something a lot less sophisticated than a full-blown desktop PC like the you know, like the Surface Studio or, or you know, the, any of the new HP line or any of these other things that just seem to be overkill for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. And I, I do think a lot of the focus has been on certain categories of users, whether it's, you know, tech journalists writing about their own experience, whether it's, you know, the odd high profile designer or uh, video editor or uh, game developer or something who's saying, you know, I'm getting fed up with this Mac situation, I'm switching to Windows, or or I wish there was something better here. To your point, I think the mass market still seems to be very happy with the Mac, it's selling very well. I think, you know, the other side of it, and you mentioned this before we started recording, is the enterprise. And, you know, there there was a report that came out from, I think, the company's Jamf this week. Um, about enterprise adoption of Apple devices, and it talked about Mac on the one hand, and then iPad and iPhone on the other. But there are more and more companies that are offering their employees options of having a Mac or a PC. And you know, at IBM, for example, where they've offered that option for some time now, seventy-something percent are choosing a Mac over a PC. You know, whereas obviously the legacy installed base would have been the vast majority going the other way. So. You know, they are making some inroads in the enterprise, and it's obviously helping with some of those sales as well. But there is this shift from the sort of classic Mac sort of creative user from the past to the sort of mainstream enterprise user and mainstream consumer user as well. And so, you know, whether it's college students or whether it's just ordinary business users within the enterprise wanting a simpler, nicer experience on their computer, there's a real shift towards Mac there as well. So it's so certainly not all going one way, and, uh, and as I say, it's very easy to kind of overblow the views of a few prominent and potentially influential, but, you know, just a few people who seem to be complaining about this stuff. I still think Apple has an opportunity to turn all of this around very quickly if they release some new desktop Macs in the next few months that, that hit a lot of the pain points that people are talking about. Um, but... I also think they shouldn't overreact to all that. They're clearly finding a very large sort of general interest market for Macs uh, that goes well beyond the sort of you know, erstwhile core audience of designers and creatives. Any last thoughts from you, Aaron, on this topic before we move on?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I mean, the truth is this whole narrative is going to shift in uh, three to four weeks when Apple has another event. and. Mm-hmm. New IMAX are probably going to be in there, and, and who knows what other surprises. So, it, I mean, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the narrative won't shift. It'll just pick up steam. <laughs> but, yeah, who knows? I mean, I think it could go the, either way depending on what they actually end up announcing. Right, but but the next few weeks will be indicative of, of um, I don't know, the year to come.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think by the end of the year, we should have a fairly different picture. Um, but uh, to your point, it may either reinforce this narrative if, if the new Macs aren't up to speed with what people want, or it could totally destroy it and put apple back on a much healthier course in terms of narrative around its its mac business yeah all right well let's wrap up the episode with our weekly pick it's my turn this week and uh, i'm going to recommend a tv show it's a tv show that you can watch on netflix uh and it's it's an english tv show um and i know i recommended one of those a few weeks ago with uh, i think planet earth 2 um this one is a slightly different one again it's it's nonfiction. Um, I'm not a fan of reality shows, I should say that up front, and and especially competition shows, they're very nasty and uh, unpleasant, and it often feels like they're deliberately calculated to kind of up the drama and the nastiness in between the contestants. But a show that we've been enjoying recently, and it's available, at least two seasons of it are available on Netflix, is what here in the US is called The Great British Baking Show. In the UK, it's actually called The Great British Bake Off uh, so it's called GBBO for short uh, but here in the US it's run on PBS in the past and it's on Netflix now And it's called the Great British Baking Show and it is a sort of reality competition style show where uh, 12 bakers uh, get together and compete against each other to bake a variety of things for two judges who then decide kind of who's the best one of the week and which one has to go home this week and slowly gets whittled down to three contestants who then compete in the final and one of them ultimately wins the whole thing and they, they had quite a few seasons of this in the uk as i say just a couple of seasons available on netflix what's striking about this show is it's one of the few shows that we've really been able to enjoy as a family and we've got kids ranging from uh, five to eleven at least the ones that actually watch tv we have a baby as well uh, and they've all enjoyed it uh, and enjoy different aspects of it they get into it and they're inspired and our, our oldest has been doing a lot of baking of her own recently kind of inspired by some of the stuff that she's seen on the show Um, it's a really fun show it it has none of the nastiness none of the drama of uh, normal competition and reality shows it's very pleasant the the contestants are very nice to each other Uh, one of the judges is a little harsher than the other but they're also fairly nice and encouraging and so it's a it's a very different kind of reality and competition show so if you're interested in baking if you're interested in good tv uh, then i highly recommend the two seasons of the great british baking show which are available on netflix uh, and we'll have a link to that on the uh, podcast website, along with some of the other stuff that we've talked about today, as usual. So it's great to see here. you recommending a cooking thing, by the there way. There we go. <laughs> it, it warms my I was my kidding, with, kidding with Aaron before we started, <laughs> but this is the, exactly the kind of thing he normally recommends. I think he's recommended several cooking TV shows on Netflix and the yeah. past, so... It's my turn, I guess, for a change. But uh, I'll be back to recommending movies and and games on your phone and stuff like that soon, no doubt. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) thank you all for being with us. Thanks again, Aaron, for the Question of the Week stuff. That was really good. And uh, we will be with you again next week. Thanks.